Hi, and welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, and I am really privileged today to be speaking to a wonderful woman who has many years of improv experience, and in fact, tonight she's celebrating her 14th year with her troupe, Ha Ha. So, hi, Pam. Hi there, how are you? I am really nice now that I'm speaking with you. So, uh, how did you start Ha Ha, and what is that? What is Ha Ha? The hahas. We the are ha-ha's. the hahas. The yeah. hahas. <laughs> and, and we uh, and we used to be called the haha sisterhood. Our first gig was in a library. Um, so fourteen years ago, I guess it was fifteen years ago almost that I was taking classes uh, in improv, and I loved the classes so much that I convinced the teacher that if I could get a lot of the students to sign back up, would they teach it again? And they said yes, or teach the next level. And they said yes, and uh, they were teaching short form. And then I just, one day, I just fell in love. It was like a lot of people experience instant addiction. Um, and there was one small group in the Valley. And I was like, well, I've had eight weeks of classes. They should be inviting me in any day now, right? <laughs> and they didn't, how dare them. Uh, and I happened to be chatting with my local librarian. I live in a real small town. And we were talking about improv because, I, you know, being an addict, you, you bring it up. And she's like, oh, yeah, we'd love to have a show. And I said, oh, cool. Yeah, I can do a show. Absolutely. Uh, and after, so we added, after eight weeks. Yeah, something like that. It was crazy. <laughs> and by the time I got outside, I realized that I had just booked a show and I didn't have a group. I just booked the show. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I sort of do stuff like that where I, I just, you know, uh, what is Tina Fey has a quote and which is based on Del Close. It says jump and then figure it out afterwards. Right. Um, and so or say yes and then figure it out afterwards. And so um, then I ran back to class and I thought I picked the people who I just really love playing with and the people I love playing with at that time were all women because I found that the women I was learning with uh, were listening really, really well and uh, on, on a level that I didn't see with um, some other folks. And so I, you know, chose a few different people and we just, you know, it's like a lot of people get started. You don't know what the heck you're doing and you just keep trying. And so that was 14 years ago. Uh, some of them Two of the people we're going to have a, a, our celebration with were, the, were in the original group. Um, and then the other couple came on, the other two people came on um, like ten, 10 years ago. So it's been a long time that we've all been together. Um, we're all, I think we have one person, I can't remember how old Miley is, but she's like in her mid-30s. But the rest of us, I guess, would be categorized as middle-aged. Um, and yeah, we're... A bunch of uh, ladies improvising in the Pioneer Valley of Western Massachusetts. That's wonderful. That's just wonderful. Yeah. So after that, you went to Chicago at some point, didn't you? I did. Well, so the thing was with my silly education, I'm mostly um, self-taught. Uh, because I'm in Western Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, two hours from Improv Boston. So really... That wasn't, I, w I was a st at that time a stay-at-home mom. I was a homeschooling parent. Um, so I did not have the kind of life where I could take a class and commute four hours to take right, a class. Right. Uh, so we learned on our own. We just kept practicing and practicing, and I read about it voraciously. And then 
I would try stuff out. And then I think one year I went to Del Close Marathon down in New York City. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, oh, that's long form. And so I came back and I was like, okay, you guys, there's this thing. Uh, and so then we kept working on that and I developed forms that work really well for my particular group and how, and how, cause there are a lot of fantastic actresses in my group. So I developed some structures that particularly work for, uh, great actors. And, um, and then in 2012, so I started keep, I went to the Chicago improv festival. I didn't know why I was going. I thought it was ridiculous. Here I was, I was producing a monthly show. I was improvising uh, with my just with my little group, and at the time there were like I knew five other improvisers uh, that lived where I live. Um, so, but for some reason I felt like I wanted to go to the Chicago Improv Festival, and I remember crying about it a lot because I didn't know why I wanted to go. I felt like a dilettante, which mm-hmm. is the which is mm-hmm. this title that I chose that made me cry because it was like why do I want to do this? Um, I'm just a hobbyist. I don't know. Something about that just really was tough for me. But I went anyway. And instantly, I I figured out why I was there. Like within, I don't know, like a half hour of showing up at my first show, uh, I met Jonathan Pitts, who is the executive producer of the Chicago Improv Festival. And we hit it off. And then I went to this free thing in The Reckoning we're performing. Um, which is this longtime group. Uh, Jet Eveleth is in it. Jake Schneider. I think um, Lauren was in that. Holly Lauren. Um, and they were just, I saw, they just did the best show I'd ever seen in my life. Um, it just was the perfect, the perfect Herald. Actually, they're the ones on uh, Sharna Halpern's book, Art by Committee. Um, they do the exam, the reckoning does the example of the Herald. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just, it was just lovely. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, this is it. These are my people. Um, so I kept going back and I eventually brought my, um, my live talk show to the Chicago Improv Festival. And in 2012, I signed up to take the five week intensive. So I rearranged my life. My husband was incredibly helpful my in-laws moved in with us, mm. with moved in with him for a couple, two and a half weeks to make it possible. My mom helped out, um, and I had the five, well, five of the best weeks of my life in the I.O. summer intensive. And then the next year, I went back for the I, for the annoyance intensive. Oh my gosh! So you yeah. worked with people okay. like Mick Napier, and I uh, sure did, and uh, Joe Bill. Uh, uh, yep, a little bit. Uh, Mark. Mark Sutton. Yeah, uh-huh. I know Joe. Mark I know Sutton. Joe. Uh, Mark Sutton, Susan Messing, Rich Sohn, and Rebecca Sohn, and Mick Napier were the teachers in the Annoyance Intensive. Well, of course, Susan is my diva. I just yeah. adore her. I just she's totally my adore she's her. yeah she's my spirit animal. <laughs> so, so that first improv class, what was it that hooked you immediately, or did it take the whole class, or was there something kind of instantaneous? Oh gosh, you know how it is. It just this. It's just that that ah moment. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like this. This is this is what I've been waiting my whole life for. Right. Um, it wasn't until I started improvising that I made sense to the world. And I even I'm like, yeah. And I don't feel like anybody understands me until they see me perform or take one of my classes. Like that's just the meest of me's 
<laughs> well, one of the things that fascinates me is your class is Zen of Improv. And right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that is, I'm really into the mindfulness of improv and yeah. mindful improv. Yeah, I teach that too. Um, the Zen of Improv is my four-level improv curriculum that I that I teach at the Happier Valley Comedy School, which is the business that I own. Uh, and I, that's the first four levels of our school are my classes, the Zen of Improv, and then and then there are a whole slew of advanced classes uh, that go from that. And then I go out into the world and I teach intensives, one and two day intensives about the Zen of Improv. It was. Um, an approach that I developed after writing Improvisation at the Speed of Life with T.J. Jagodowski and Dave Pesquese. And really, honestly, I had no, I'm a teacher. I have my master's in elementary education. I'm a born teacher. I used to teach, you know, I, I've taught pretty much almost like my whole adult life mm -hmm. in one form or another. Um, and I, and the funny thing was when I first started out in improv or until I wrote the book with these guys, I never wanted to teach improv. <clears throat> I hated it. Wow. Um, I know it's weird wow. and I couldn't figure it out. There were a couple reasons that I, that I figured one is improv was for me at that time. It was just for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just didn't want to teach it. I just wanted to be the student. I just loved, and I still love being the student. That's mm -hmm. one of the things I love about improvisation the most is that we get to be students for the rest of our lives. We get to be beginners for the rest of our lives. It's fantastic. You know, there's, you, you get, you certainly become more skilled, but that's one of the mindfulness parts of it. Like a, a bad show is always a possibility um, for all of us at any time. I thought after 15 years, 14, 15 years, whatever it is, I thought the ha-has were beyond it. And because we're, we do, you know, we do a pretty solid show, um, you know, at the very least lately it's been, maybe sometimes we'll get a B, B plus show. Um, but then we had, a, we had a gig just a few months ago and it was terrible. We were awful. We were so bad. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. We can still be terrible. That's fantastic. Um, good to know. So anyways, uh, so that was one reason I hated it. I didn't like teaching it is that I love being a student. And another is just, um, I love improvisation so deeply. It's such a sacred thing to me that it, when I was teaching it, I found I was just seeing a lot of bad <laughs> improv, mm -hmm. right? Cause you have to start off like that. And that's of course me judging it. Um, I was going to ask I... you what constitutes bad improv. If we say there's no mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just not enjoyable. This was, and this was, you know, me 10 years ago. This was, mm -hmm. it was not enjoyable to watch. It just didn't feel good. It didn't feel right. And then once I wrote the book with TJ and Dave and became immersed in their approach to improvisation, that's when I, that's when I was like, okay, this I could get behind. And this is this mindfulness idea of being in the present moment. I'm like that I can teach. Yes. I would love to teach it. And the beauty of it. And so my, the, the Zen of improv is come is derived a lot from spending 18 months uh, living in their brains and writing their words out of my fingertips. And Susan Messing is a huge influence for me. Uh, Mark Sutton is a humongous influence for me. He's, he's now uh, running um, the BizCo, I believe, program at Second City uh, and performs with Joe in Bass Prov and, is an, and uh, Mark is an annoyance mm -hmm. founder. 
and teaches this very emotionally emotional point of view relationship based approach to improvisation that really I really dig um, and that I can teach and the beauty of it is I never see scenes that I don't enjoy watching from day one mm-hmm. um, because it's real and I'm delighted and in endlessly entertained to watch people be real and authentic. That to me is interesting. And I feel like the Zen of improv, you know, we're, we're teaching and it's a, it's a slow moving thing. You know, I don't know if it would, it works in my community where a lot of people are just studying improvisation because they love it, Mm -hmm. not because they necessarily want to get on stage anytime soon. Um, which is ideal. It is a great student body to have because they just love it. They just love it. It's so it's great. Uh, and they're not needing to get anywhere, which is the perfect play for perfect mindset to be in if you're learning improvisation. And so I get to teach being in the moment, being real. And so I feel like the, 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 I guess the subtext of a lot of it, I feel like what I do is over the course of these four eight week classes is that I proved to them that they had everything they needed to improvise the minute they walked in Mm -hmm. the door. Mm -hmm. And it's just peeling off those layers of fear and self doubt and judgment of themselves and others. So getting back to TJ and Dave, which is a game changer. When I saw the, uh, the DVD and I haven't seen them live and that silence and that absorption was just spectacular. And I love two-person scenes. I just think it's the greatest. So that was an 18-month process. How did it begin? And how, did you do it through online? Or did you go out and talk to them? Or uh, A little mostly online. Uh, thank, thank goodness for Google Documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did it. We would just sit there. It, it was There's a, a various process. I, got, I started doing it. I have an a interview series called Geeking Out With, which yes. is very similar to your podcast. I was in the same situation where I was in an isolated area, but I wanted to learn from people. So I was like, I was like, can, can I interview you? And, you know, I started, I asked all these people and of course being improvisers, they said yes. And I got to ask them any question I wanted about improvisation. Um, so that, that was my schooling. And so I I had the same experience that you had, Margo. I watched, um, trust us. This is all made up. And I felt like the bar of improv was raised instantly. I like it, it ended. And I was like, Oh, this is what this art form is capable of. Yes, this. Uh, and from then on, it was like I was all about TJ and Dave. I was relentless and ridiculous. Um, and watched them when I was in Chicago and, you know, could get them as much as I can see them. And, you know, they're on Vimeo, too. You can buy their series so you can see other shows besides that. Oh, okay. Yeah, check it and check that out because yeah. every every show is a lesson without a doubt. So I interviewed I oh this is what I did. Uh, they TJ is from Western Massachusetts, and his they were doing a fundraiser for an organization that TJ's mom ran uh, around here. And by the time I tried to get tickets for it, it was sold out. So I was like, I am going to the show, damn it. I'm going to see them perform live. I can't miss it. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, I told my friends, I was like, whatever you need to do, do. But I'm going alone and I'm getting in. And I just showed up at the door and just was like, 
I need, please, I'll wash dishes. I'll stand in the back. I don't need to sit down. You don't understand. This is like seeing the Beatles for me. I need to see them. And I think it was TJ's mom who was standing at the door and she laughed and she was like, here's a ticket uh, and let me in. And it, it was delightful. And after the show, I... Force myself to inter- <laughs> I force myself to introduce myself to to, to David, and uh, blathered on and on, and he just looked at me in a bemused way, and I was like, I, I do this interview series. Can I interview you sometime? And he was just like, Sure. Uh, and so I sat down and interviewed him. Um, I did it online. It was an interview series online with for geeking out with, uh-huh. uh, where I would type questions and they would type answers. And then I actually, so it it came out, it was a, I think it was a two-part interview. And I got this email from TJ that was like, hey, great job with that Dave interview. And I was just, what? You know, it was like, it was just like, what? I was like, if this is the pinnacle of my improv career, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Totally worth it. And so, of course, because I am relentless, uh, I said, I would love to interview you too sometime. TJ and he said well it's taken me an hour just to type out this email Uh, I don't think I'm not sure that's possible and so when I went to Chicago I said I'm going to interview him in person I said oh then I think I wrote that back I was like I'm going to be in Chicago uh, this summer and maybe you'll sit down for an interview in face to face and then it took me weeks to uh, screw up the courage to introduce myself to TJ because uh I highly recommend everybody go to Chicago and see as many shows as they can. Uh, and TJ just astounded me. He astounded me. Every show, he, you know, it wasn't just TJ and David. It was every show that he was in. Just He just never, he just amazed me so much. Uh, so I couldn't get the courage to introduce. And he was always sitting at the bar after, after shows, totally approachable. And so I emailed him and I said, I haven't been gotten the courage to email you. I just introduced myself, but I swear to God, I'm doing it soon. And so... Finally, I walked in. That made me do it. And I walked up to him and he goes, hey, Pam, how are you doing? I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> And so I and within three days of that moment, I was sitting in TJ Jagodowski's living room uh, with my friend Peter Kim holding a camera. And I just sat there for two and a half, three hours asking him every question I could think of. Um, and that came out in a geeking out within a three part interview. And he he liked that. And I don't know. It was something about that. I don't know what it was for them um, that was different, but they both liked the results of us working together. So after I came home from Chicago, I wrote them an email and said, you guys have something magical and you there's a book there. I've been I've interviewed a lot of people and nobody talks about improv quite the way you talk about it. And I think I should write your book. (laughs) <laughs> because I think I have a little bit of magic too. Um, and then I sent it and didn't expect to hear back from them at all. Uh, and didn't <laughs> for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I followed up with them and then uh, nothing. And then finally it was probably a month or two later, I got a text from Dave that said, we would like to TJ and I would like to discuss the possibility of writing a book with us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And again, I know. I remember holding my phone and showing it to my husband and being like, does this say what I think it says? Um, and then still it was just endless jumping in to the unknown because I was like, great, let's do it. And nothing. And then I'd follow up 
cool, let's have a meeting. Nothing. Uh, anytime. And it, is so, it finally <laughs> got to the point where I was stalking them uncomfortably and I just could not write them another email. And I was sort of bemoaning it with a friend who of mine, my friend Stuart Scotton, who had gone through the IO intensive with me. And he said, do you know what the book's going to look like? And I said, oh, yeah, I have the, uh, the table of contents in my brain. He's like, great, write it down and send it to them. And that's what I did. And that became and that was finally what sort of like they could see it and they knew. I, I don't know. That's what finally got us to the next stage. And we just sort of sat there. Uh, we it took us a while to figure out the perfect way of doing it. But by the by the end, what the process was is I would write down a whole bunch of questions. And I think I'm pretty sure I sent them the questions. And then we'd sit on the phone, just like you and I are doing now. And I'd ask them every question I could think of on a certain topic. And then I would um, I recorded that and then I would transcribe it and it would I would work on it for about two weeks full time of um, forming it into a, a chapter. And we did that. And then we had the whole manuscript written and then we went through it together on Google docs while we were on the phone, just sort of going through and editing it together in that process. I think we did that a couple times. Um, and so that was the basic process of writing the book. Wow. All, all, all of us into, and sometimes we'd have in-person meetings, but not very much. What an incredible journey that must've been for you. Just incredible. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, I suggest it to everybody. It's so fantastic. And you're, you're a very good writer. Oh, um, thank you. And uh, did you study English before you studied education, or what was your? No, I didn't. I mean, I was a I was a psych major at Smith, but Smith, uh, like a lot of liberal arts colleges, was what they really taught was the ability to learn and the ability to express yourself um, in writing. So I really learned how to write well at Smith. I didn't study creative writing, but I always wrote, I always wrote from when I was little, like I, I won an award when I was in first grade for writing. Um, <laughs> it was this dumb little book. Uh, and I just, that was just something I just always loved doing it. Well, talking about books, there's another, there's a children's book you wrote and I can't, I don't know if I can pronounce it right. Is it Baj? Yeah. Baj and the word launcher. Uh-huh. Can you tell me a little bit at, about that and how that formed? Yeah, and Baj is the name of the main character, uh, and that's just, um, my son's name is Jacob, so I took letters from his name and mixed them up to form Baj, because it's a sci-fi book. It's a children's chapter book. It's written about on a second grade reading level, and it, it, it's a therapeutic fiction book. It uses sci-fi to teach social and communication skills. Uh, it's about this character, Baj, who uh, has a hard time communicating with people, and he would be qualify as Asperger's mm -hmm. um, and he has he gets these three what seems to us magical but in in his world it's just you know cool stuff these three different things that help him process communication both uh, hearing it and um, and speaking and also he has this cape that helps him feel calm and mm -hmm. keep his cool mm -hmm. and so I wrote I wrote it for my son my son uh, was diagnosed with Asperger's and um, even before his diagnosis was he was little he was I guess they call it he called they call it hyperlinguistic. I mean I just thought he was gifted mm -hmm. um, he was reading I mean he knew letters from I think he's been really reading since he was like six or eight months old he was looking at books in a way that wasn't just like 
picking them up and looking at the pictures and throwing it down. He was just paging through them when he was really little um, and knew his letters at an early age. And so um, he 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 could identify Q before he said mom. So I could tell early on that that was a great way of getting information to him. So um, when he, there was something would come up, I would write a little book for him, like tiny, like it was just like taking four sheets of paper, cutting them into fourths, stapling them together and writing it and doing like this scribble doodles that I do. And it was like stuff like, uh, I remember one was called yes means yes and no means no, because when he was little, he would have, he was mixed up about the difference between yes and no, because he didn't have really a good differentiation between himself and others. Mm -hmm. So if, uh, he would say no, and he didn't always mean no, sometimes it meant he was afraid. Um, he just wasn't sure. So that book was sort of clarifying what that was all about or when my daughter was born he was two and a half and so I was sort of describing that process uh you know it was called Jacob gets a little sister um so stuff stuff like that I have a whole bunch of little books and then he got older and he was in first grade um and he loved the magic treehouse series which is just such a great I mean that is also therapeutic fiction Mm -hmm. I mean I really credit them for modeling a great sibling relationship that my kids emulated. Um, and so I, that problems got tougher at school for him. He went to school through second grade and it was just really challenging. I mean, he was brilliant. He is brilliant. Um, he was reading, you know, off the charts at that age, but, um, and yeah, there wasn't anything they were teaching him academically, but the social stuff was just so stressful for him. So I wrote this book for him to help him. Uh, And then somebody said, hey, you should get that published. Actually, it was the therapist at his school. And I sent it to a publisher. um, And and they they said, yes, (laughs) it was crazy. But I wrote it sitting by the pool over a weekend. Most of the book. I wrote the first eight chapters um, just scribbling on a legal sheet of paper. And then it took me a year to write the second two because I just didn't want to finish it because he read it. So it was sort of like. I didn't need to, but then I just just went ahead and finished it and sent it out. That's spectacular. You are yeah. There's a there's another one, but the the publish it didn't sell enough. It didn't sell well enough, so the publisher is not interested in the second one, which I actually think is better. And so, did you homeschool for a while? Were you stay at home? Yes, I homeschooled my son for ten years, um, and I homeschooled my daughter for five of those years. She went to, and she's neurotypical. Uh, she went to. Uh, Waldorf Middle School and then the regular uh, public high school. They have an amazing theater program at, at the Amherst High School. And so uh, she just fell in love with that and, and was there. And my son is now, a, he's entering his senior year at Bennington College, where he is a music major. Um, and he's studying the creation of a rock and roll persona. He said he, he, said, he says he's majoring in how to be David Bowie. <laughs> oh, I love it. How fantastic. Yeah. I love Bennington, yeah. too. I love the whole... I went to school in New England at one point, too. But Amherst is full of creative people. Just yeah. creative, artistic, beautiful people. That's a beautiful story, Pam. Thanks for sharing that. So sure. I wanted to go back to improv. And some of the things I've, I've read about you is you say you don't teach yes and. and I do not. Us, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't teach any rules. Because uh, I, I don't find them helpful. And that, that approach was based on sort of this, 
um, debate I had while we were writing the book uh, between Dave and I. Uh, so we have a chapter, which I believe is called, if I remember correctly, it's called Fuck the Rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Dave, they don't think, or NTJ, don't think the rules are worthwhile. And so I would have this debate with David in particular, who I love to argue with. Uh, and he said, I thought you have to learn the rules in order to forget them, you know, but you have to learn them first because that's how I learned improvisation. And he said, why learn something that you don't need, that you only need to forget? You don't, you never need to learn the rules. So that when I had first started teaching, I had one class, I started my school with just teaching one class. And by the end of that one class, I was like, okay, I've probably run through the seven people in my County interested in learning improv. Um, which fortunately is not the case. We have hundreds at this point, but um, I didn't teach the rules and, and at all in my first class. And it was sort of as a bet to sort of prove David Pesquese wrong. Uh, <laughs> I was right. like, I'm not gonna, I was like, I, I just was so excited to be able to go. I mean, it was win-win. win-win you know, it, it won, at the best of cases, it was a great way to learn how to improvise. And worst case scenario, I get to say to Dave, see, you were wrong. Um, but he wasn't, he was right, of course. And I just don't find the rules to be helpful because Mm -hmm. they put people in their heads and that's the last place I want people. I want people to be in their bodies, in their hearts, not in their heads. I want people to be in the moment, listening to what the other person is saying. And when we think about the rules, uh, I see students when they think about, when they've learned the rules or thinking about shit like that, their eyes go up. Mm-hmm. They're looking at the mm-hmm. ceiling because mm-hmm. I think they're in their heads and they're remembering. And I have this little signal that I do to my students that kind of I take my two fingers and I pull them down and sort of saying to them, come back here. This is where the scene is in the moment. It's mm-hmm. not in your head. It has nothing to do with the rules because <laughs> you learn the rules. And then the next thing the teacher says to you is, oh, and by the way, you could also break all of these rules. They're not they're not tight. So it's like, what? the? Well, there's no point. <laughs> And I don't think yes and is an important rule. Mm-hmm. I do because because I don't think it means saying yes. It doesn't. It's the spirit. I teach the spirit of yes and, and I don't use these words in my classes. I use it in implied improv, but I don't use it in my improv class. In applied improv, I'll talk about the spirit of yes and because it is a short and fast way. But in improv class, I teach acceptance right. and agreement. That is important. And it's a messy acceptance and agreement is a messy journey. Um, that is, I, sometimes I, I find myself thinking, crap, I wish I taught yes. And it would be so much easier. Um, because I do believe a TJ says, if you could say yes or no, and both maintain the integrity of the scene, Mm -hmm. say, say yes, say yes. If either one maintains the integrity, say yes, go ahead and say yes. But sometimes no, is an agreement, right? So yeah, yeah. that's that's important to know. And what cemented it for me is hearing about, in the last few years, hearing about all the times that yes and has been used against women to make them do stuff on stage that they're not comfortable doing, which is in Ouch. downright misogynistic and yeah. sexist, right? And so I was like, okay, well, First of all, that's so sacrilegious to me to use these watchwords of improvisation against people right. is to me the lowest of the low. It just it disgusts me and uh, makes me really, really mad. So because it's against everything we stand for. Right. It's ugh, it's gross. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, you know, people as humans are humans. They, they also use the Bible to kill people. So 
uh, as an excuse to kill people. So there you go. Right. People, humans are going to do that. Um, but I find it disgusting. So yeah, I don't teach yes. And cause I don't, I do not find it useful. So we take this messy journey in discovering what is agreement. And mm-hmm. it's something that takes years and years and years and forever to understand. You know, um, I, that brings me to the idea that the character might want to say yes, but the improviser might want to say no. Can we talk about the distinction between character versus improviser? Yeah, the, right. And that's a great one because the improvisers should always be in agreement. That's You should always be in agreement with your scene partner. Doesn't mean saying yes, but be agree that being in agreement to me re- means saying uh, being um, being in agreement means accepting the reality of the moment. Right. This is the scene we're in. I'm not going to argue it. Right. You set it up and you're like you're you have a bunch of kittens in a box and you're outside a grocery store. Um, I'm not going to come in and be like you shouldn't be selling kittens. I'm not, or, why are you selling kittens? That's stupid. Like no, this is the reality of the moment. Right. And my that that knee jerk response to argue it is understandable. I have so much compassion for the no sayers and myself when I'm saying no because it's just only a response of fear. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. It's scary. No keeps us in the present, right? And yes, moves us forward into the future. So I get it. I say thank you to that impulse. And then I say, shut up because uh, it's not necessary. So the, the the improvisers need to be in agreement with the reality that's happening. Right. The characters might be in disagreement and that's fine, right? Would you like a kitten? You might say, and I could say, no, my character could say, no, I'm allergic to cats. I guess, you know, there, if, there's a good reason to say that. I don't know that I, to me personally, that wouldn't be the most fun because then that stops it. Mm-hmm. But the characters could say yeah, yes or no. Uh, so for example, here's, here's a deepening of a, the understanding of this, I, of a, this question, which I find to be very complicated and I'm not a hundred percent clear on it. Cause I'm still exploring it. I just started a two person group with my friend uh, and who was my friend Scott Braidman, who is the director. Actually, he's the dean of comedy school at my school. Um, And we are finally, for the first time in my life, in my improv life, I am doing the kind of improvisation that we wrote about in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really fucking cool, Margo. (laughs) I bet it is. I bet it is. I'm jealous. I'm sitting here jealous. Yeah. No, I I am jealous of myself too. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a long time coming, you know. I've been doing this for so long, and um, it was just a matter of finding the right person. I've known Scott for years, but it's at the right time mm-hmm. where we're both, you know. And I think teaching, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't been teaching for this long because teaching really helps to understand it. So Scott and I have this rule that. We don't have to be in agreement, but the characters have to like each other. That's mm-hmm. our only rule. We don't, we don't even have rules about the form or structure. It could be whatever it wants to be. But the only rule is that the characters have to like each other. And that is just this convenient way of making sure that as improvisers, improviser to improviser, we're in agreement with each other, that this is the reality of the scene and we're both on the same page. Because I'd rather do a, I call it you and me against the world scene, 
than a you against me scene. Right, right, right. Right. When the character, when the improvisers right. are saying no to each other, it's a you against me scene. It's just this battle of wills to mm-hmm. see who's going to fucking drive the scene the hardest. But I'd rather do a you, you and me against the world scene. That's so much more fun. And that leads us into discovery, right. which is, I think, the thing that is the best. Absolutely. That's, that's what gets me high. Absolutely. Um, another thing that uh, I wanted to ask you is about your joyride. What yeah. is your joyride, Pam? <laughs> well, and that's a, I always say jo- joyride, trademark Susan Messing. Yes, of course. That's, that's a Susan, that's a Susan thing. Um, and I can't even hear it without hearing it her, in her voice. Right. You, you're responsible. I can't do Susan, but I just love her <laughs> voice. It's so, it's so sexy, wonderful. Um, but it's the joyride is the thing that uh, you do that is fun for you. Right. Uh, And you are responsible for your own joyride. So I have these two guideposts that for teaching improv, for teaching applied improv and actually not coincidentally for living. My two guideposts in life are joy and ease. So joy is having is having fun. What brings me joy is a lot of things like I'm in charge of my own joy ride. So sometimes it's like reading a really good book mm-hmm. could be joyful. You know, it's not always like, woohoo, let's party Daytona beach. Right. Um, though that's, that's great fun sometimes, but sometimes it's like having a difficult conversation and getting to the other side of it, you know, going through a struggle, you know, writing this book was writing that book with the guys was really hard a lot of the mm-hmm. time in a lot of different ways, but that was a joy Right. Because it's like sort of living my living my dream and and creating this thing that was bigger than all three of us, I think. Um, So I get to decide my own joy ride. You get to decide your own joy ride, Uh, because my goal in life is to die having had more fun than anyone. That's it. And that's a fantastic goal. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's one of the things, you know, after a scene, I'll ask. So what was fun? What was joyful for you about that scene? Because I find it to be very, very useful because when something and you say what what makes a bad improv and so I right you're absolutely right there is no such thing as bad improv but there is people not having fun right and that is a really good litmus test for finding doing improv scenes that you can feel good about you could get high from uh, and you feel proud of and the other test is this idea of ease which is different than easy. As I was interviewing people for Geeking Out With, I remember TJ and also um, Jason Schatz of a two-person group called Dummy um, with Colleen Doyle, which is just there at the TJ and Lit Dave level of mm. two-person. They're fucking brilliant. Um, and Jason was also, they both, both Jason and TJ used the words easy. You know, this is, it's easy. And I was like, fuck you. (laughs) It is not easy. I'm working so hard. You know, I'm studying so much. I'm getting doing shitty shows and feeling bad about it. It's not easy. Um, So it it took me a long time to understand what I think they really meant, or at least what I mean is easeful. That's what I'm heading for. And that is this idea of just this is being in the flow with it, which is almost this idea, this idea of non-effort, 
mm-hmm. effortlessness, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's the the visualization I always use for easefulness is being in a canoe, going down the stream, taking the oar out of the water and just letting the stream take you. You know that feeling. Right. Some people have it when they do athletic stuff. Uh, I get it when I'm writing, right? When I'll write and then I look up and it's hours later and I was like, I have no idea where this came from. I was, I'm just, right, transmitting it. Um, so, and, and we get it when we're improvising sometimes, uh, when we're lucky. And so after every improv scene, I will ask, where was the joy? Where was the ease? Where did it stop being joyful? Where did it stop being easeful? And I also use this in my applied improv program, which is called the through laughter program, because it's it still works. Like if we're not having fun, if we're not in ease, then then there's a wrinkle and we need to sort it out. So then we ask now, how do we move forward together? Right. We've identified what's not joyful, what's not easeful. How do we move forward together? Um, And oftentimes I'd have to say, God, I have to say 80, maybe 90% of the time, the thing that gets rid in the way of our joy ride is this thing that I call the uh, evil mind meanie. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the voice in your, it's the voice of judgment in your head. I say it's the voice that's always conjugating to suck. I suck at this. You suck at this. We all suck. They all suck at this, right? And it's that highly judgmental voice, the voice of unhelpful judgment, we name them in my school. We just call them Calvin because uh, that's just a name we came up with. Although mm-hmm. everybody has a different name. I have one that deals with body issues. Her name is Brittany. <laughs> um, some of my students call it Mr. Hausenfraus. Uh, it's just whatever you want. I have a, uh, somebody I used to work with had it said it was the, the parrot on his shoulder. But it's that voice in your head that you get when you're in a scene and you might be thinking, oh, that was the stupid, stupidest thing. I hate that. And sometimes you're judging yourself most often, but sometimes you're also being the asshole judging other people. Right. And so we do a lot in the Zen of improv, a lot about quieting that judgmental voice because day one is learning how to, how to identify Kelvin's voice. Right. So we, that's the first thing I do with every single, no matter where or what I'm teaching whether it's for peep doctors at the local hospital or people wanting to learn improvisation. The first thing we do is to identify this voice of unhelpful judgment. And then we learn different techniques for getting that voice to quiet down. It'll never stop. It's part of the human condition. Everybody, unless they're a psychopath, has that voice in their head. Or like sometimes drugs will make that voice go away if the person is abusing drugs or has a very severe mental illness. But otherwise, almost everybody has that voice that's saying, um, that's hating what we're doing. And the thing about that voice of unhelpful judgment is it's 100% liar, liar, pants on fire wrong. Right, right. It's It's always a lie. It's a belief. It's not a fact. Yeah, but it's very loud sometimes. It's a very Very loud. Very loud. Yeah. It is. Yep. And so what we practice is quieting that voice, because whenever I ask where was joy, what was useful and what stopped you from having more fun than anyone in that scene? Almost always the answer is Calvin, because Calvin puts us in our heads. Judgment, judgment puts us in our heads. And once again, I want to do everything I can to keep people in the moment um, listening and responding. That's all it is. It's just listening, responding. A lot of improvisation is just unlearning shit that stops us from listening and responding honestly to the moment. 
And that's why it has so many applications, like in therapy world or corporate world or all these different places where it really helps improve people's ability to listen and to really see somebody. I read somebody was talking about that phrase, uh, got your back, got your back. And yeah. uh, it might have been Rosowski. And the, uh, he said, uh, he likes to say, I see you. I see mm. you. And I, I guess, I, yeah, I hate that phrase, actually. Yeah. Not that I see you. I, I hate I got your back. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. I just, it just, yeah, it annoys me because just have my, and, and I wasn't, I had somebody, I asked somebody about this in one of my, I think it might've been Mark Sutton. Um, yeah. It's like, don't say I got your back. Just, it's just saying it. I don't know. Say whatever the fuck you want, but I won't. <laughs> it just sort of makes my skin crawl. Just have my back. You don't have to tell me. Right. Uh, but right. yes, I see you where I'm here with you. Rosowski is absolutely right. I think in my opinion. I agree. So uh, we're both on that mindfulimprov.com uh, uh, group of people who do improvisation with mindfulness in mind. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the things you said on there was that your favorite mindfulness game is Big Booty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know it, can you tell us what Big Booty is? <laughs> uh, gosh. I've, I've got one. Does that count? <laughs> What's that? You've got a Big Booty. Yeah. Oh, do you? Yeah, I bet you've played Big Booty. It goes by many names. In my school, we call it Big Buddha. Uh, I, when I teach it in an applied improv, because Big Buddha and Big Booty isn't so cool when you're mm -hmm. teaching corporates. Right. Uh, in corporate world, sometimes I call it Big Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a simple game where you're standing in a circle and you everybody counts off. Uh, and it's an energy passing game. And like if as the facilitator at that moment, I'm Big, Bo I'm Big, Bo Big Buddy um, or Big Buddha or whatever the fuck. Uh, and until I get it, until I get out and then I'm something else, but the person to my right is number one and number two, number three, number right. four, number five, all the way around. And it's just energy passing game where I'll say big buddy, number two. And then number two says their number first, number two, number seven. And then number seven says number seven, number four, number four, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and then you do, we, I sing this stupid song beforehand. Um, and I say, I, I dance a stupid dance just because that's my joy is mm -hmm. being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then and you're supposed to do it on the beat. So it will sound like big, bo big booty, big booty, big booty. Oh, yeah. Big booty, big booty, big booty. Oh, yeah. And then it would sound like big booty number two, number two, number seven, number seven, number 12. Right. And then you're like, oh, there's no number 12. Ha ha ha. And that's when the game actually starts. Then that person who made that quote unquote mistake comes over and now they're number one and everybody shifts. So your number is constantly changing. So the idea is to make a mistake and that's to be rewarded. So we'll be playing this uh, in an applied workshop after I've um, done some exercises where failure is disempowered and redefined and we cheer for each other's uh, mistakes. And so eventually like three or four people will make a mistake and they get to number one. Uh, and everybody shifts around because I want them to make mistakes and mm -hmm. everyone's just kind of like, I hate making the mistake. And they're, <laughs> they're so bumming about it. And I'll say to everybody, okay, now those four people who made a mistake and I'll point to my left, those people standing there. I said, these people are the only people who have played this game as directed because the game didn't start till someone made a quote unquote mistake. So these people are the only ones doing it right. And then I point to everyone else and I say, and you guys suck. <laughs> um, and they always laugh. And so and it's like this idea, my goal with Big Booty is to play it. And I've been doing this right for, for so many years to play it. And when I get out to, to go instantly to yay, instead of having that moment of, Ugh, 
that's a practice. I still can't do it. But to, to your to your question, the mindfulness about it is it so engages your your whole self that you can't think about anything else except the game. And I and once people get good at big booty, I have other games like there's one called George and that's even harder and you get out even more. Uh, and so that's great. Cause that's what I, I want to keep people continually. I don't care. I don't want them to get good at it. I want them to continually to be making mistakes, to be feeling okay about it, to be moving. How can we move forward together? Right. And to be most of all engaged in the moment. Right. Right. If they get good at George, I, there's another one called, uh, E five, damn it. Uh, which I've only had to pull out once because George is so hard. Um, but I, yeah, I want you to, to get to be engaged. I want you to be like, so I, sometimes at the, when I'm teaching mindfulness through laughter and we're, we're first learning big booty, I'll say, great, who was thinking about their day right. in the last right. five minutes? And they're like, no, nobody. You can't possibly think about anything else. It's like, great, fantastic. That is mindfulness. Like that, we've been practicing mindfulness. Um, and it's the kind of mindfulness that me as an extrovert can get behind mm-hmm. because I don't have to be quiet and stuck in my brain with that hamster wheel of thought, you know, mm-hmm. that hamster on the wheel of those always those thoughts. I get to be mindful, engaged with other people laughing and interacting, which as an extrovert is just, that, that feels good to me. I, I had no idea you were an extrovert all this time, Pam. Thank you for, yeah, yeah. for sharing that. But, but I'm still singing Big Booty song over here. I was rocking up to it, man. Why'd you do a few more bars of it? <laughs> this has been a fun, fun time today. And uh, I've learned so much. And I had all kinds of questions I didn't even ask. So uh, maybe another time. And we're going to be putting up your website and various information about you when we post this. And, yeah, people uh, can check out on pamvictor.com. There's a, an essay series that I write for my Zen of Improv students, and it's called the Zen of Improv. So some of the stuff we talked about and more is written on there because it's stuff that student questions that students had, and then I'll just write about my my answers. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, have you have you another book you're working on right now? No, I don't have time to to work on another book, unfortunately. But that it. Uh, that's hopefully the the seeds for the next book is the Zen of Improv. And that the TJM Dave book was their book about their ideas. Right. So uh, while we were writing, a lot of times they'd say to me, you know, Pam, save that for your book. Uh, and I was like, great. OK. And so, yeah, one day my book's coming out. Well, I want to say happy anniversary and thank you thank so you. much for the time getting to speak to you today. And do you have any words for maybe a woman who's just starting out in improv and maybe feeling a little overwhelmed and not sure of herself? Yeah. Practice identifying that voice of unhelpful judgment and asking it to shut up. Uh, and there are lots of different techniques to, to help get it to be quiet, but whatever you can do to quiet that vo- that lying, lying voice, because you need to be having more fun. So figure out how you are, can have the most fun. And it might be finding your people. Uh, and maybe you haven't found your people yet, but they're out there. They're out there. So you just keep putting yourself out there. Keep jumping. Keep jumping. Well, thank you and bless you, Pam, for the work that you're doing. You're a marvelous person, and I hope I get to speak to you again, maybe even see you in Amherst. I would love that. And you do travel around the country, too, though. I sure do. I come down to Florida, where you're at, quite a bit. I'm traveling um, in January. This uh, 2018 travels are taking me to the Pacific Northwest, where I'll be teaching the Zevin of Improv two-day intensive 
in Seattle and then teaching a number of intensives in Olympia, Washington. Fantastic. Well, you have a wonderful day and happy anniversary, Pam. Thank you.